Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our next guest is. Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers and entertainers in the corporate and events world, and we really do find out what makes them tick. My name's Michael Pope, and I'm here with Carson White from Leading Voice. Carson, who is our next guest? Our next guest is an Olympic gold medalist, naturopath, motivator, cook, author, and a mum. She's also in the final stages of her PhD. When Taekwondo was included for the first time in the Sydney 2000 Olympics, she had no idea how winning that first ever Olympic Taekwondo gold medal would change her life. Her achievements are too many to name in this introduction, but where did it all begin? And why do the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles mean so much? Let's find out as we welcome our next guest, Lauren Burns. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Cool. So let's jump in firstly, who your favourite is. Is it Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo, Carson or me? <laughs> oh, well, you guys, of course, but Donatello's got to rate pretty highly. It's a pretty, pretty classic Ninja Turtle. Indeed. <laughs> There's many places where we could begin the conversation with our guests, but I think given such a teaser with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, why does that connect with you? Well, it was really, I've, I guess I attribute my uh, journey into Taekwondo through the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My brother was seven at the time and fancied himself as a Ninja Turtle himself. So he was always flying around the house and wearing ninja headbands. And it was when he went flying through a, a window in the lounge room that my mum put her foot down and said, that's it, straight down to the local <laughs> club. So he started and then my dad started and then I followed in their footsteps after much, much encouragement of them, them trying to get me down to a club. So, um, yeah, that was really where it all started. So they, I mean, they got, my dad got his black belt, my brother almost did, yeah. and then they stopped the sport and I just continued. I really, really loved it and thrived in that environment. So at its core, it was a brother-sister rivalry sort of motivation, wasn't it? Was, it? <laughs> well, he was so much younger than me. He was, he's seven years younger than me. So he's, you know, when he was seven and jumping around the house, I was a teenage, you know, 14-year-old girl. So it was pretty amazing they even got me down there, I think. <laughs> Lauren, I've known you for, for a long time and um, you were never a sporty child growing up. So um, why Taekwondo? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I went to a progressive school that didn't believe in any competitive sport, but there was there was lots of games. I was always really, really active. And, and I guess that comes from my mum. So I loved a lot of strategy games and I was always playing, you know, board games, making up different games and rules and sports. And so, yeah, that was something that I was, I guess I just thrived on, on, on that sort of thing, but um, I'd never had, had that sort of competitive upbringing. And then when, you know, when I got involved in Taekwondo, it was really, I think there's something about the martial art of that constant never ending improvement. And it really is about becoming your best self. And that is what martial arts is all about. It's that, and I guess the competition then is about with yourself. I pick up on the competitive and I think you've answered it there because an Olympic gold medalist, and we have spoken to a few, that sense of competition and being the best against all others is very much a driving force. But it sounds like your uh, competition to be the best was against yourself. Yeah, it was. And and I guess in the in the sporting sense, it was you know, absolutely. That was my, I had this incredible hunger to win. And I always wanted to win at every competition. It was about getting the best out of myself and really pushing myself. 
Interesting, you, you started your journey. I remember you telling about the first um, the first ever fight you had, but you learned very quickly that you necessarily weren't the most talented uh, martial arts taekwondo um, athlete in Australia. But it, what was it that um, you thought you could do that would take you to that gold medal? Well, again, it comes back to being a strategy sport. So, you know, we're not testing, when we're in the ring, we're not just lining up and testing how fast our kicks are or how powerful they are or whether we've got the best technique. And, you know, some of the, these Korean girls, the girl I fought from Chinese Taipei at the Olympics, you know, her technique was just, you know, incredible, impeccable, like it was just precision. But, you know, in terms of winning in the ring, it's about outsmarting your opponent and having strategy. So, you know, that was, I guess, one of my, you know, mental skills training was about, you know, we're all the same. We're human. We've got two arms and two legs. The only difference is the head. So, you know, really, I guess, critiquing that that strategic analysis. So every competitor I had videos of and pages and pages of notes, and I was constantly thinking about strategy and and I think that was, you know, that was something that I thrived on and really paid off in the end. That leads into, with alluding to, was the fact that you really, it was about the dedication, the commitment, the processes, rather than being the most naturally gifted. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I often talk about this, that, you know, natural talent is not the cornerstone of success and that, you know, there's a lot of people that have, you know, a lot of natural talent and that's that only gets you so far. And, you know, really you can be quite you know, quite skilled, you can go a long way with natural talent, but I, I think that you can't sort of reach that real pinnacle with that. And there's a lot of attributes that, you know, perseverance and teamwork and that mental strength and that dedication that, you know, really applies to lots of different areas, but they're the things that I think take take you further. And So it's not impossible that you can train me for the Paris Olympics? Is that, <laughs> is that off the table? Um, well, the, you know, there's always limits. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if we can just talk about the Olympics for a second. So it was um, yeah. the first time Taekwondo had ever been included in the Olympics. And so um, so that was quite special. So tell us about your Olympic experience. Well, yeah, I, again, because I was so focused, I I really had, I couldn't party <laughs> like everyone else. Um, and actually I was, I was doing some work with the AIS the other day and I was chatting to Libby Trickett and she was like, I was on the very first day. And then we got to party for two weeks. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that was not my experience. So, yeah. you know, we we went into the village and we set up and we'd bought a lot of things with us, which we had the luxury of doing because it was in Australia. We bought like carpet and a video player back then. So, mm-hmm. you know, we would con- constantly be watching fights. And then we trained in that environment and then they took us out to Canberra. So we went out to the AIS to get out of the sort of hype of the village. So we obviously marched at the opening ceremony because we were there early. And we were all pretty, uh, no one wanted to leave. We were really set up and we were really comfortable in the village. And we thought that our officials were making a terrible decision. So we went kicking and screaming, but when we got to the AIS, they'd flown in international training partners. We had the whole AIS to ourselves. You know, we had access to all of the sports science, sports med, the recovery pools and spas and massage, physio, everything. So it was the right decision because then when we went back into the village, we were really fresh. And, you know, I did things like I, I didn't go to any other events. I only went to one and that was so that I could hear the crowd because I really wanted mm. to get a sense of everyone was talking about what the that the crowd was really influential in their performance. So I went to the Grant Hackett swim and I was, you know, 1500 metre swim and I was just sitting there and I closed my eyes and 
I just felt that crowd. So that was important in the preparation to realise that they were very, very powerful and you couldn't fully block them out, but you also couldn't let them influence you too much. So, yeah, I guess. And then, you know, after the games, we I was right in the very last couple of days before the end. So there was there was a little bit of partying, but really not, not, <laughs> not much to write home about. I want to move into life beyond Olympics and your life has mm. continued to be successful beyond the Olympics. But if we could just pause at winning gold for Australia in the first ever taekwondo, how, yeah. how does that feel? And what, what do you take from that? And what then do you give to an audience about that moment? Well, it was very poignant time in my life. I, I was, when I was going there to win the gold medal and I was, that was my purpose and I knew that if I gave every single part of my being, every part, it was like part of my soul or my spirit that I had to put on the line because that's what it is in that in fierce competition. It's not just your body. It's like, like everything, your mental strength. And so I was going there to win that medal. And then when it happened, because we, you know, we talk a lot about process as athletes. So it's all about process, you know, winning that next point. You know, I wasn't focused on the outcome when I was in the ring. I was focused on the match and doing what I knew. And then when I actually won, I, I guess I hadn't really thought beyond that. I hadn't thought about the media attention or the crowd or certainly they just mobbed my family <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> and um you know, and all of the things that happened as a result of that. And then I guess, it, you know, it was life-changing as well. But, you know, it changed many things about the way that I guess I approach things. And I, I think one of the main things is just that sense of that I can achieve anything if I put my mind to it. And that's something that I really share with my audience as, as well is that sense of, you know, if you really want to do something, it's about setting that plan and and working out how how you can do that. And, you know, it's not as we're talking about natural talent. It's not just going, well, am I good enough to do that? Mm. Well, I'm not right now. And and what do I need to to set in place? So what support systems do I need? What do I need to restructure? How do I need to balance my life to be able to achieve these goals? So, you know, and that was the same with, with the PhD. And I have to say, studying with a family <laughs> and doing a research project, that's been, that nearly broke me. That was much harder than winning an Olympic gold medal. Are you better than your brother being a mum as well as beating him at taekwondo? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. He's a way better cook than I am. So, <laughs> so what you segued yeah. into is one of your keynotes about what can be imagined can be achieved. Uh, when did the, the speaking circuit uh, life open up for you? Well, speaking really opened up for me as I was training. So as I was preparing for the Olympics, you know, we we were pretty, we used to get $42 a week on the Olympic athlete program. Wow. So we're very much full time, but far from fully funded. And I think this is the case with a lot of Olympic sports. So, you know, we were we were so excited because it was the first time our sport was ever in the Olympic Games. So we didn't we thought it was great that we were actually getting paid and we were getting our trips paid for. We used to normally have to pay for our tracksuits and our airfares. So, you know, we had to work and train and then we had a lot of travel time. So we're always overseas and big camps, you know, could be a month or so in Korea. And so one of the things that was really great for me in terms of work was the VIS had a sports persons in schools program. So I would be able to ring up the VIS and say, I'm in town, I'm back in Melbourne, give me all the work you've got. And I would just go out and speak to schools. And 
and that was I guess where I cut my teeth in the in the in the speaking sense and you know there were some pretty tough crowds there was yeah. some some you know I mean what's, you've what's got, a tough I think crowd prep, I, well preppies are pretty difficult because they're you know got a short attention span or they want to tell you about their dog um, <laughs> has anyone got they don't really understand their question what a question is and what they is them just telling you about their yeah. life yeah um but definitely year nine boys so there was a few there was one in particular that was a group of year nine boys and Oh, they just really, they wanted me to do flying sidekicks and jump up in the air and do ninja, you know, these sort of Jackie Chan stunt moves. I think they thought I was, it was like going to be watching the movies. And yeah, so that was, that was pretty tough actually. And I think after that, that session, I thought, God, I, there's, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> but you did evolve out of that and, and you've gone on to do a huge speaking career. You mentioned the PhD a couple of times. Why did you want to do this PhD given it was one of the hardest things you've ever done in life? Yeah. So, and you know, I, I often when people say they're going to do a PhD other than telling them not to do it I also ask them (laughs) you know like why you know why do you want to do it what are you going to get out of it how is it going to impact your career and and for me this I was teaching medicinal food science at Endeavour College and so I needed to be enrolled in a master's so part part of it was just to be have to be enrolled in something that was a higher qualification and then I was really passionate about the subject matter but as what often happens with research is you don't end up studying what you set out to do in the beginning. So that was sort of like the roller coaster of, of, of research. But, you know, I think, and this is what we talk to the athletes about is we, you know, we talk a lot about role with it. So rolling with the, you know, things that happen in life, sometimes you've just got to go, well, you know, can I control this? What control the controllables? What can I do about this? What can I get out of it? Things often go wrong, you know, and that's the same at the Olympic games or, you know, for my, in my situation with research. And so it was like, well, how, what can I get out of this? And, and as it ended up, one of the topics that emerged was around interpersonal relationships and support. And I never envisaged that. It was not something I said, I was studying food at the beginning and I ended up doing lifestyle and mindset of elite athletes. But, you know, that support piece is now become something that I can speak on and I've done more work with the AIS we've done another research project and and we're looking to do more so you know sometimes you don't realize what's gonna what's gonna come of it but all of the skills that I learned as an athlete I put in into the into study and you know I think modeling lifelong learning is also for me that was something that coming back to your question Carson of like why did you do it I, I actually thought it's a great thing to model to my kids like lifelong learning like continue to to, and the more that you understand something the more that you learn the more you realize what you don't know (laughs) so that's also great I think for us to to realize that there's so much out there and that we can always be learning and there's always new information your time after the 2000 Olympics is is very broad and clearly very busy. You've also written two books, Fighting Spirit and Food from a Loving Home. On your website, laurenburns.com, you've got a blog and I expected you would be talking about sporty kind of stuff, but there's a lot of recipes. My question, back to 2000, was food and diet for athletes as important uh, in their mindset as it seems to be today? Yeah, it's really evolved. And I mean, I was doing a lot back then because I was studying naturopathy and nutrition. So I was learning that directly and I was implementing a lot of that into my program. I was also a a vegetarian athlete and I was a weight division athlete. So I had to make sure I was getting enough 
you know, nutrients and protein and good fats and all of that to drop weight and also to be as, you know, strong and powerful as I, as I possibly could. But in my research, I was interviewing athletes and, you know, there's definitely been a shift. So a lot of the athletes that were competing back in the 80s, it was all about carb loading, <laughs> you know, pasta, bread, yeah. you know, and yeah. then, you know, the athletes now were talking a lot more about, you know, nuts and seeds and fish and and so, you know, even just the language around it. So I have to say toast was one of the most commonly consumed foods. <laughs> and I think that's because, you know, athletes are jumping in the car or after training. But, you know, the ones back in the 80s were like toast and jam. Yeah, right. The ones you know, in 2000s were more like toast and avocado. And This is toast and quinoa days? <laughs> yeah, toast and quinoa days. <laughs> but, you know, I think diet and nutrition is, you know, is really paramount to uh, you know, being sports specific as well, you can, it can really help your performance and your clarity. You know, one of the things with food we know is, you know, we, mood food, things that we can eat to help our mental health and our mood. And, um, and I think that, you know, athletes really should take the time to look into that. And some do and more than others. And some actually have, like, it was interesting. I was chatting to Russell Mark. He was one of the athletes I interviewed. So, you know, Olympic gold medalist in shooting. And, you know, he was saying that they had a nutritionist travel with them. So that was, for me, that was quite surprising because I wouldn't have thought of shooting as a sport that valued nutrition as much. But what do you say? He was, I know. So, and one of the reasons is because that when, they, when you put on weight, you often put it on around your cheeks. So that's where the gun sits. So yeah, right. if you put on weight, our, and they they had like a, a competition weight, even though they weren't a weight division sport. So he was like, yeah, you know, Michael Diamond and I, we always <laughs> travelled with our scales and made sure that we had this competition weight because it, it changed quite yeah. dramatically where yeah. the gun would sit. So, yeah, it's interesting. Last question before I let you go and kick some more boards or whip an egg. <laughs> if someone was to book Lauren Burns for their next conference, what do you offer? Your website seems to offer all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so obviously a keynote, that's what I've been doing, you know, for, well, I guess I've been speaking for about 25 years now. So uh, the keynote, which I can, you know, get someone up to break a board in that time and get people just, moving. Just on the bit. board, just on the board breaking, I'm, I've yeah. always been curious. Do you get your balsa wood from Bunnings or do you get it from somewhere else? I have to get it from a hardware shop and it's it's plain down to a thickness that is appropriate. You so, missed the comment about the balsa wood line. <laughs> oh, balsa Yes, no, no balsa wood. Fine. Right, um, okay. So we're kicking boards. And what else do you offer? So really, I guess with the keynote is sharing some of my stories and experiences. And I think this is where I've changed as, as a speaker probably in the last 15 years is it's really about relating that back to the audience. So what can they take from my stories? So when I first started, I was all about my stories, but mm. now it's more about what impact does those, you know, what are the messages that come out of that and how can the audience take those and apply them to their business or to their life? Yeah. So I also yeah. do a workshop, which is where I get everyone doing taekwondo it's really fun interactive we play music we you know have I have everyone breaking boards so that can be you know usually it's around what well, could be 50 people but 200 is fine the biggest group we've ever had breaking boards was 800 that was pretty crazy it was pretty noisy <laughs> um, and that's great because we can tie a message to that board break so you know what is it that you want to achieve from this conference or what is it that you want to achieve when you go back into you know leave the conference and something you'd like to action so that can be great to to tie that into 
a personal purpose. Yeah. And then I do other workshops, which is a little bit more about, you know, high performance living and being your best self. So it incorporates, uh, uh, you know, my stories and experiences as well, but also around, you know, values and goal setting, planning. You know, I guess some a lot of the PhD learnings about high performance and mindset relationships right. and lifestyle. Fantastic. A very thorough offering. So from that little girl who started out inspired by her brother and then reached the pinnacle of the sport, uh, clearly you've still been winning gold in your life since as a naturopath, as a motivator, a cook, an author, a mum, now with a PhD under your belt, uh, probably a black belt. Congratulations (laughs) to you. And uh, I look forward to being in the same room with you and we'll kick some wood. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. I had the pleasure of seeing Lauren speak just recently and a mark of a good speaker is the uh, the number of questions that an audience will ask after a speaker speaks and she was inundated with questions. Uh, usually uh, the sign that the audience was engaged. So if you want to uh, have Lauren come and talk or do a workshop, a board-breaking workshop at your next conference or event, please go to laurenburns.com. You've been listening to Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC Michael Pope with our next guest is. More guests can be found through iTunes or just visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break.